0: This story is raw, and please know that it may not be suitable for young children or sensitive listeners. (laughs) Get them kids some Legos. They can come back in about five minutes. I'm nine years old, and we don't eat meat, my mom and me, because we're vegetarians. But since my stepfather, Leopoldo, entered our world, we have meat in the house, steaks in the refrigerator. We buy them every week now, whether my mom needs them or not. I know now how meat feels, but not how it tastes. Cold, thick, rubbery. It's funny how raw meat heals raw meat. The cold steak reduces the swelling on my mom's cheekbone. Cold steak on the puffy protrusion that threatens to swallow her right eye, blackened for looking at other men. Cold steak on her lips, cracked for talking back. Her face is a disaster but the cool, moist flesh draws down the pain, the discoloration, the swelling. It's funny how this dead flesh gives life yet. I want to heal this face, ravaged by another, angrier face, my stepfather's face, now sitting silently across the room, open with remorse. Even when he's sorry, Leopoldo scares me. His body is always tightly coiled, ready to strike out. He's sinewy and strong. Scars fleck his moody surface, here from a knife, there from broken glass. One of his impossibly rounded biceps has a jagged, dark bullet scar. At night, my mom holds me tight and sways with me. Her face is clear and bright, framed by dark curls. She tucks me tight and kisses me on the forehead, rises and turns off the light. And then she closes the door, and I'm alone. And she's not alone. There's a man out there waiting for her. This man nourishing his demons with green bottles of malt liquor. He yells at her, accuses her, threatens her, and then as often as not he begins hitting her, really beating on her. She screams in her defense, or pleads with him to stop, or promises to do or not do whatever it is. And dishes break and things are thrown and knocked over. Impacts to walls and floors make booms and crashing sounds. I'm casting about in my room in a panic grabbing at one thing and then another, searching for some object, some strategy I can use, clutching first a book and then a trophy and then a toy bat. Why don't I ever remember to hide a kitchen knife in here? What would a man do? I'm her son, her only son. I'm leaving my mom to die. I always do the same thing. I calm down. It is important to calm down. I climb back into bed and hunker down beneath blankets and pillows. I muffle the sounds of my mother's destruction. I used to cry myself to sleep, but now the sounds are too routine to bring tears. I suppress the churning in my belly and the lump in my throat, as mom taught me. He doesn't hit me, but he bosses me around, mocks me, threatens me. I'm 12 years old when I think I finally have it in me to kill him. Get out, I say. You're nothing without us. You're nothing. He doesn't even look upset. My time has come. He just casually punches me in the mouth. I fly backwards, crashing into the couch, but I bounce right back up. My upper lip, bloody and numb, I'm screaming at him. Get out, get out. And magically, he does get out. And in that moment, my mother finds her way back into sanity. It was somehow okay for him to beat the hell out of her, but not me, not her boy. So we pack fast, and we run. That summer we hide out in John and Susan's basement. I see John peer out protectively when we hear cars coming up the driveway. But Leopoldo doesn't find us that summer, and then we move up farther north, to the woods in Skagit County. I'm 13 years old and I'm strong, and now I hope he does find us. I wait for the day. I eventually pray for the day that he finds us. At the barter fair in Okanagan, I converted my little life savings into a semi-automatic M14 rifle with a 10-round clip. And I've got knives everywhere, in my bed, my boot, my backpack, my book bag. But he never does find us. He never finds me waiting for him. I'm 27 years old. I'm an attorney with a new client in a maximum security prison for women. We're going down the list of questions, and I ask her what her batter would typically do when he was done whipping her. And she tells me that he would gently tend to her wounds with witch hazel, doctoring the red welts on her brown skin. He kept steaks in the fridge to heal her. The meat, she said, brought down the swelling. I stop writing, and we both look into the distance past the bars on the window. And she says, Isn't it funny how raw meat heals raw meat? And I agree that it is funny. She starts thanking me again for taking her case. I was a stranger to you, she says. You didn't even know me, and yet here you are. Here I am, I say. I feel like I've known you for a long time. After a silence, she says, All I ever wanted was for him to leave me alone. That's all I wanted. But he came after us. He found us. You have to believe me. I didn't want him dead. I didn't want him dead. I believe her. I believe that, unlike me, this convicted killer never wanted her batterer dead. And there, in the prison, I'm finally thankful that he never did find me, waiting for him. Joshua Safran's struggle to free a battered woman from prison is the subject of crime after crime, the award-winning film that premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and was an audience favorite on the Oprah Winfrey Network. His memoir, Surviving Utopia, about his childhood on the run, will be published next year. We'll have a link to his world on our site, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Jamie DeWolf and Stephanie Fu.